So here's the idea. I would aim for making at least four times the average professional salary wherever you're living in order to feel that sense of freedom and flexibility in terms of what you can get accomplished with your spending. So let's see how this theory cashes out when we apply it to locations. When we look at locations like Thailand, Bali, and Vietnam, which are very popular with our listenership, four times would be about $48,000 a year. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, don't want to put you on the spot here at the top, but I'm going to put you on the spot here at the top. Oh. You were just on the phone with our second cohort, second group of DC scale companies. Maybe just describe what those calls feel like because people heard us kind of thinking about DC scale on the podcast in real time and what's the reality of it so far? So today was our first call. And so the way that we've designed it so far is that basically there's two three-hour calls at the beginning and then we alternate weeks between accountability and learning sessions. So today was our like really long three-hour call. It was a lot of fun. Basically, the idea is like to get momentum in the kind of thing we wanted to do longer sessions at the beginning. Yeah, we ask everybody like at the end, like what's your emotion? And like most people are like overwhelmed. So that's how I know we're doing good. The <laughs> idea isn't necessarily to overwhelm people, but it is overwhelming the amount of information that we're sharing at the beginning of this course. And then throughout the course, we'll kind of break it down, go deep, go into specific examples, talk with companies about their experiences, and then obviously implementation. So it's a lot of information on the first day, but it lasts for basically a quarter. So uh, yeah, a lot of people are feeling very overwhelmed today and then also like very excited because they've afforded themselves the opportunity to work on their business instead of in their business. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So for those of you just catching on the, the pod bandwagon, we've got a little program called DC Scale. It's like if Scaling Up and Traction had a baby and that baby had a passport and wanted to jump on a jumbo hauler <laughs> around the world. Let's get moving on to some of the topics for the podcast this week. Ian, we've been getting a lot of questions about location. The podcast for location-independent entrepreneurship. Location-independent isn't location-arbitrary. I'll read just one email from a listener. Anonymous writes, the impression I get from talking to people is that people get hung up on the trend or the perception of places rather than a question like, does the city have the stuff you like doing? For me, it's museums, breweries, food, and travel. When you remove the public perception, you realize the popular cities aren't always best for what I actually like doing. Also, like you preach, lower cost of living is a priority in the beginning. The trendy cities will be a lot more expensive. And what are you really getting for that versus other places? Lastly, you have traveled a ton. What cities have changed negatively from beginning of this like location-independent trend and what places did you used to recommend that you would no longer recommend? Okay, so that's a really amazing email. We appreciate these kinds of emails. They set up the podcast. Also, I recently saw a tweet from recent guest Matt Paulson, built a wonderful eight-figure business, internet native, and came on the show to tell the story. 
he recently tweeted that he regretted not moving to San Francisco earlier in his career. And I thought that was an interesting regret because I've said the same thing a bunch of times that I personally regret not moving to San Francisco and instead moving to San Diego. Now, of course, for some reason, you're not allowed to regret things in the 21st century. Like people won't allow it. So this doesn't mean an attack. It's not a negation of all the amazing things that have happened in my life. It's simply this idea of like, get rid of the counterfactual. If you could just go back to that moment and optimize for raise, call, fold, left, right, what's the better option? If you're sitting there as a 21-year-old Dan Andrews, go to San Francisco, not San Diego. Like, what are you doing down in San Diego, man? Well, I'll tell you what you're doing. Not much. <laughs> we, we obviously had a similar path, Dan, because that's where we met with San Diego, you know? And if, if Matt Polson was on this show, he was on the show a couple of weeks ago, my question to him would be, would you stay in San Francisco? Because these towns and these cities, they have life cycles. And I think they're appropriate at different yeah. times in your life. But I've long thought this, and I still think this about like San Francisco and New York, really great places to be when you're poor and really great places to be when you're super rich. Like getting stuck in the middle there, it sucks. Kind of like early in your career, there's like the trampoline starter city or whatever. Yeah. Like, where do you go? We've shared a bunch of stories of people who've done this in Chiang Mai. People have done it in San Francisco. People have done it in Austin. People have done it in Medellin. So there's a lot of these places where you can go if you want to run a specific sort of business. Like Simon from Pangolia, for example, moved to Chiang Mai, got in with the Chiang Mai SEO scene, met mentors there, and turned that into what is a very, very successful SEO-based business, Pangolia. So just to back up about our journey, you know, we both met in San Diego. We've discussed it many times on this podcast, but you know, that we weren't really in the mindset of these kids today, which is like, I'm going to start a business like fresh out of college or I'm not even going to go to college. So we're talking about location here, but really like the location is like um, conversation, like after we talk about the trajectory of our life up until that point, you know, for me, it was like, grew up in a place like Virginia. It was gray for four months out of the year and then moved down south. And then it was like, I always wanted to kind of go to California. Like I, I hadn't even started to think about what entrepreneurship was. This is just purely based on like what I saw on television. You know, and I think you and your friends, Dan, you like uh, threw quarters against the wall or something and decided to move to San Diego. Yeah, we we're a bunch of geniuses. Yeah, some version of that. And so by the time we kind of woke up, me and you woke up like in our mid 20s, we we're like, oh, wait, it's actually kind of a choice oh, wait, there's not a lot of entrepreneurs in San Diego. This is a problem for us. But yeah, really this conversation for me of like location, it's kind of a cool conversation because like the whole model is being upended for these kids that are not necessarily even going to college anymore. All right, so let's break down this question. I really like, first off, let's bag on San Diego. America's finest city is not the finest city for entrepreneurship. So Why? Just because you're around money and wealth doesn't mean that there's any on-ramps to it or any access to it or any learnings to get from it. Just because you moved to LA doesn't mean you're going to be a movie star. So let's talk about a couple concepts. One of the things that Anonymous, our wonderful listener who wrote us an email, wrote is they're basically saying, you know, hey, don't follow for the trend or a brand of a place. And I kind of like that. So the first thing I'd encourage people to do is to look for a small cult-like crew, a small group of people that are active and dynamic in the industry, not brands or perceptions, right? 
we talk about this with travel theory. Like if you want to go to a futuristic exotic city, like the brand of that lags behind the reality. Like Bangkok is a much more futuristic city than Tokyo, for example. But because a lot of people watch movies 20 years ago, everybody thinks Tokyo is more futuristic, right? There's, there's sort of like these brand and then there's the reality. So for example, like a lot of music is produced in LA, but if you want to be a music producer, like maybe it's better to move to Nashville right now because like that's sort of an up and comer and there's a little bit more access. So it might be get easier to, to get plugged in. So one of the first things I like to point out, and I think this is why San Francisco is a magical place to move in say 2005 time period, is that at that time, everybody was building a web-based application. Like, and if you were interested in like web-based applications, like that was a place that you could move and talk about that all day long. Me and you, meanwhile, in 2005, were sitting down in San Diego with a bunch of people who cared about golf and who cared about real estate and who cared about fine dining and things like this. And we were sketching in our notebooks web applications, you know, like thinking about these ideas that had we just been in San Francisco, there would have been a few hundred people, maybe a thousand, maybe a couple thousand are just passionate about this idea of moving software onto the web. And so the challenge is, is where are those few hundred, few thousand people that are super passionate about the thing that you want to turn into your career? Go hang out with them. It's a great litmus test to see if you care or if you don't. The thing about like what you like to do, I feel like those problems are a lot easier to solve. So I wouldn't optimize for that, especially earlier in a career. Even mid-career, I've seen people like optimize for things like mountain biking or golf or hobbies and things like that, which may be better to live in a place where those things aren't as great, where you have a better network. So I'm, again, looking for that small group of people that can make all the difference in your career. You want to seek those people out. Yeah, Anon mentions, uh, for me, it's breweries, museums, food, and travel. One thing to note, and I don't know if this is true with you as well, Dan, but it's like uh, I visit the same like seven restaurants. Really, the idea of having like 3,000 great restaurants in a place like New York that you could never get through, for me, I'm just like going to the same seven places. Because yes, like good food and top quality ingredients is like a priority for me, but it's like relatively easy to get that at the five places. Like my mission in life isn't to visit 3,000 restaurants. There's some places in America that are absolutely still a food desert, not dessert, but desert, meaning like there's not a Whole Foods (laughs) within 100 miles. But most places uh, in the U.S. you can accomplish this that are like third and fourth tier cities. And certainly you can accomplish this with real ingredients, uh, meaning real food in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, when I read something like that, like my first thought is, well, someone who's thinking about network in terms of, you know, there's a good network of like food and there's a good network of like this or that my thought would be like, well, this person isn't putting priority on entrepreneurship or building or art or music or... Because yeah, while it's true that you can have access to those things as a consumer anywhere, as a builder and a primary actor, it's not true. And then typically, like it's the ways in which you want to do it too. So I'll tell a little revealing anecdote, but I recently had to go home for a family visit. And I come from a very conservative area of the center of the great state of Pennsylvania. And sometimes I'll do the thought experiment, like, why can't I live here, right? Like, why, why couldn't I just come home and buy a house and just kind of be at home? And the reason is, is in the communities that I'm active, building entrepreneurship, stuff like that, there are certain 
I'll just say social standards that I would need to adhere to in that area of the country in order to have a seat at the table. And for whatever reason, that's not my value set. I'm not, a, I, I can't conform. So I'd always be an outsider there. The point is, is that the sorts of conversations that primary builders and owners have aren't being had there. So for me, like I would have to be, live this part of my life completely virtually. And so when I read like a healthy list of things like, oh, breweries, restaurants, museums, like parks, things like that, I'm like, cool. Like your primary thing is like family. Your primary thing is hobbies. Your primary thing is like not being around primary actors who are doing the thing that your business does. If you're an internet builder, I would say that. The other way that you described that, I think that makes a lot of sense to me is like, is there an on-ramp for you? When you talk about like San Diego, like there was no on-ramp there unless you had like a million dollars sitting in your bank account. There's like no on-ramp to start a local business. There's no on-ramp to like buy real estate. There's no on-ramp to do anything there except for try and survive if you're doing a startup. And that on-ramp is very short because and now I'm talking about runway because you have to pay for the infrastructure of California and San Diego. So I think the idea of like the on-ramp in Nashville, if you want to be a, a singer versus LA, it's like much more accessible. If you want to start a tech company, here's a good question, Austin or San Francisco? Like there's a lot of reasons why the on-ramp in Austin is better. If you want to have more balance in a family, the accepted wisdom that I hear, because I haven't spent time in San Francisco, is that if you want to be obsessed about technology and that's your main thing, San Francisco is a better bet. If you want to be more well-rounded and have multiple interests, Austin's like an interesting, more of a compromise spot. But it is e very easy to get access to people here in Austin. One more thing on this location thing, Dan. Professional industries have been doing this for like forever. Remember like going to, over to China for like 10 years and like all the button factories are like right next to each other. And yeah. like all the motorcycle factories are right next to each other. In North Carolina, there's a place called Mooresville, North Carolina. It's like where all the NASCAR teams hang out. There's tons of efficiency in setting yourself up there's like this. There's a place uh, in Florida called Jupiter yeah. where like Tiger Woods lives and like all the guys, like they, all the PGA golfers live there. Yeah. So this is not like a new idea. I think Find your Jupiter. Find yeah. your Mooresville. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a new idea. I think it's simply identifying that this is going on and that it's important. And the reason why these people and these businesses have decided to co-locate is because there's a lot of efficiency in it. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a naivete, a lot of naivete in a 21-year-old Dan saying, well, just because California is a state with opportunities, you know, trademark opportunities, and because there's a lot of big houses here and, and stuff, that that means that that has anything to do with you, right? I mean, you have to decide what you're doing and how that would align up with that small tribe of people that are doing things and where those people are, that's going to make a much bigger difference than, you know, if you just rock up to some place that's known for something, it doesn't mean that that's going to affect your career. So let's then move on to talk about some, maybe some practical elements, some different ways of looking at the location thing, and then we can close out the topic. So one thing I want to share is this idea called the money theory of location and uh, why the reverse stair step is a thing. So we talk about Barcelona versus Bali versus Thailand, you know, Medellin versus Buenos Aires. We do this stuff all the time and it's super, super fun. However, some part of me thinks it's just stuff boils down to money a lot of times, right? Like 
you move to Bali because it's cheap and it's affordable. And then you kind of talk about all these other things around it. But at the end of the day, it's just a matter of income and specifically relative income. So having done this for 20 years, here's a thought for you. Relative wealth is pretty much the most important thing when it comes to flexibility and freedom of spending. Now, spending can often correlate to genuine flexibility and freedom. So here's the idea. I would aim for making at least four times the average professional salary wherever you're living in order to feel that sense of freedom and flexibility in terms of what you can get accomplished with your spending. So let's see how this theory cashes out when we apply it to locations. When we look at locations like Thailand, Bali, and Vietnam, which are very popular with our listenership, four times would be about $48,000 a year. So that means if you make $50,000 a year from your internet business or your freelancing activities, you can live with significant levels of freedom and flexibility in a place like Thailand. Let's take a look at Colombia. Same deal. Medellin which Colombia is a little trickier for some nuanced reasons we'll get into in a little bit, but that's about $48,000 a year as well. Mexico City. Mexico City is a big place, but I'll put the number somewhere between eighty dollars and $100,000 a year. Buenos Aires, $100,000 a year. Spain, generally call it Barcelona, $120,000 a year. Texas, $200,000 a year. That about checks out. Like your freedoms and flexibility here in Austin, Texas get curtailed if you're making $140,000 a year as a household. You know, you're going to have to start to think about it. It's going to be a brainer. You know, it's not a no brainer. And the reason this is an interesting theory is because there's a lot of influencers, myself included, they'll talk about things like, um, why do people live in Thailand versus Bali? And like the answer traditionally on this podcast has been $1,000 a month. Like one is $1,000 a month more expensive and that makes a difference. Well, there are a lot of influencers who will like sell you on the fact that they're living in South America or they're living here. But the difference is fundamentally the fact that it's $200,000 a year to be 4X in Texas. And yeah, that sucks if you're just an influencer, right? Like where are you going to come up with that money? You got to grow like a meaningful business or work at a big tech company to be able to afford that level of freedom and flexibility, probably better just to like move somewhere affordable and have it right away. And so that's what a lot of the theme of this podcast has been over the years. So if you make $200,000 a year, if you're smart enough, you're wealthy enough, you're privileged enough, then you're basically going to experience the same thing if you have 50 grand over in Thailand. And finally, New York City, obviously this is a very dynamic situation. I put it at about $300,000 a year. That's generous. <laughs> Anyway, that's my money theory of location. And all I'm saying is take that average professional salary for exit. Let me know what you think about that theory. Is, is that about the optimal minimum viable freedom and flexibility range? And this is also what we talk about with the reverse stair step, Ian. It's like you put up that internet business, you get some freelance income, you get a remote job, and hey, you move somewhere affordable. You move somewhere to like the Yucatan Peninsula or you move to Colombia or, or you know, you move somewhere that is affordable. And then as you raise the level of your business or your career, you start to stare stuff. Maybe, hey, Europe's an option now. You're making $100,000 a year. Let's check out Buenos Aires. Let's check out Europe. And then when you're making more, it's okay. Maybe, maybe we'll check out Canada or North America or a much more expensive country. So there you go. 
I didn't just want to get our thoughts on this, Ian, though. I wanted to dig into some outside thoughts. Recently, Peter Levels, who runs the brilliant website nomadslist.com, tweeted out that interested how angry people get about this. <laughs> but basically what he said is if he were 21 and starting all over again, he would move to Thailand and baseline. You know, he basically said, yo, you can get a great apartment in Thailand for 240 bucks a month and you can live there for just a few thousand dollars a year and you get all your time back to build creative projects. This is a sentiment that producer Jane ratifies. She recently wrote us about her experience seeking out an apartment for a friend's child or kid you know, coming over, you know, wanted to do a trip. And Jane was recently, and Jane is a very experienced traveler, was blown away at the value of apartments that you can get. And we'll have some links on this post from $200 a month. She writes, and I quote, I think BKK Bangkok is actually becoming more and more attractive for those seeking a base. Fabulous accommodation at all price points. Public transportation getting better all the time. Increasing food courts like Singapore hawker markets. Now you're getting like the really affordable food, but like in a more kind of clean, like regular environment. And for those who say food in Thailand has gone up, I just bought a toasted cheese sandwich at 7-Eleven for 75 cents. Come on. Thailand 7-Eleven, all-time personal favorite, and also personal safety, except the roads, which are lethal. So she writes also, finally, you can book monthly to yearly, so incredibly flexible. And I think this is the most interesting point. I personally don't know any other country where you'd find this. Yeah, I think she's absolutely right. The environment for people doing what we do in Thailand is big. You can find them in Bangkok. The affordability is low. The quality of living is high. It like meets all the requirements. The visa situation is like constantly getting better. You know, and, yeah. and I think in like in reality, like this is one of the reasons why um, Thailand is kind of winning out over Vietnam in these ways. You know, Thailand has always been like willing to kind of not necessarily like bend its identity, but like accept other identities because there's a lot of inventory in Bangkok is one of the reasons, but. Vietnam has like always been a place for me that has a very strong identity. And it's like nomads can exist in Vietnam, but Vietnam will always be Vietnam. And I think the same is somewhat true as it relates to Thailand, but Thailand might just be like a more international place, specifically yeah. Bangkok. Yeah, I had this experience this morning where I was like looking at a social media account of a friend of ours and they were at a cocktail party in Bangkok, one of the many events that are there. And I don't know, it's still surreal to me to look at these amazing, cool cocktail bars like on the other side of the world and to look at the people there and to know like they're all founders, they're all business owners and they look like exactly the people I'd want to be hanging out with if I were 25. Like cool, hip, interested, nerdy, building things. And it's just remarkable to me that's happening on the other side of the planet. Like I love it. This idea that certainly my parents would have thought, you know, for good reasons, like it's totally irresponsible. <laughs> But this is like a real thing you can do with your career now. Like that gap year, that adventure year after college could just extend to, oh, I don't know, a conference where millionaires are hanging out and talking about ways that you can grow exciting businesses that are going to be durable in the next decade. Super, super cool. A couple cons of Thailand I just want to bring up. It's not all positive. Pollution 
it's the first one that people are going to notice if they haven't been to Thailand before. It could be bad. Like for me, just kind of got used to the idea that you're breathing in soot all day long. Yeah, low-grade headaches are a thing. Like uh, last year at uh, DCBKK in October, I saw the sun twice and I was like, this is not a normal thing, in fact, yeah. to see the sun. So if those kind of things bother you, then it might not be the place for you. Final thing, which I think is really important is, you know, the time zone can be a really big issue for a lot of people that are building businesses that service the North American market and you need to be on phone on the phone with clients and stakeholders. It can also be an asset if you need big chunks of uninterrupted creative time. It really depends if you're maker, manager, salesperson, whatever your modality of most valuable work, time zone can either be a pro or a con. I also thought it's interesting. We've been doing a community census lately where we're tracking the movements of our members around the world. So I talked to our member operations person, Alex, who's been on the show before. And here are some trends he's noticed. He says Thailand, Bali, Malaysia, increasingly popular. Vietnam seems to be losing a few people to the other spots around the region. It feels like the folks in these countries in South America are much more willing to meet up. That's like the passerby scene. Whereas people in Europe and North America, it's a little bit harder to get them out of the house, except here in Austin where people seem to be out of the house every day. Colombia is suffering a little bit right now, traditionally a hotspot from a level three travel warning. And there's a lot more negative news of violent crime. Let's not mince words. Toronto and Vancouver, shout out. Lots of DCers up in uh, Toronto. Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires is coming back. One of my pet peeves, by the way, is when people want to say things in the native language. Buenos Aires is uh, becoming more popular which could rival Colombia and CDMX this year. Alex mentioned that personally, Alex lives uh, down in Colombia for some reference. Chiang Mai and Hanoi are still the cheapest places I've ever personally been. And one of the reasons that I think Asia has an edge on this is that it's really easy to like have access to high and low in the same place. Whereas in traditionally in a lot of cities, you're either in the high area or the low area. And, uh, in Asia, you have this kind of cool mix where you can live cheaply and have access to high and low end services in a safe environment, all kind of in the same geographic area. Whereas like, you know, for example, like a country that doesn't share that would be like Manila, for example, where it's like you're either like kind of spending US prices, like living in a nice area in Manila, or maybe you're saving some money, but you're not really around kind of the level of services that you're used to in the West you might not have access to. I just got a text message from Jeff, Jeff Picaro, who's been on the show many times. He says, thinking more about your question, even more so now than when I was 21, I'd tell someone to head to Southeast Asia, live cheaply, and embed themselves in the SEO community there. The reason is not because of the elephant tours. The reason is not because of the IKEA home factory. The reason is, is because of the builders, the people that you can have access to on the ground. Cool. All right. One of the things Alex writes finally is that, hey, I'm 28 and I still would choose to live in Asia because of the community. Okay. So we touched on the money theory of location, 4X, the professional salary. We talked about the continuing waxing appeal of Thailand. You know, it seems like 
Vietnam continues to be a great travel location. Bali stumbling with development issues and regulation issues. Oh man, I just read a headline. I hope it's not true that foreigners aren't going to be allowed to ride motorcycles or something there soon. I might be spreading gospel, but... They continue to uh, have regulatory problems in Bali. You know, meanwhile, over in Thailand, continued ease of visa, great access to apartments and growing, growing social scene. For example, if I wanted to move to Bangkok for six months and run the Tropical MBA podcast from a luxury apartment, I'd have no problem doing an in-person podcast and the quality of guests would be very high, right? Like, I mean, there's just tons and tons of people around similar to what's happening here in Austin. Hey, this is Dan. Just to remind you, if you love listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new website. We just put it up. It's over at tropicalmba.com. Since we don't do news segments on the show every week, the most consistent way to hear about the stories from the thousands of founders that listen to this show every week is to sign up for our newsletter. And as a thank you for doing so, we'll send you a free copy of our book before the exit, some templates that we use to scale and hire in our business, as well as some other goodies. You also receive one email a week that outlines some of the key things that are happening in our community, at our podcast, and with the founders that listen to this show. So check out our newsletter on our brand new website over at tropicalmba.com. Number two topic, how do you deal with the growing number of freelancers on your team? Got a great question from Anthony Fasano. We'll roll it here. Hey, Dan, I hope you're doing well, man. One question that I would have for you to maybe think about in your Q&A on the podcast is, this is this deal. I don't know if you're familiar with deal. It's kind of like Upwork, but it's really good for like international freelancers. Like, for example, we have someone working in South Africa. We set the job posting up on here. They have lawyers at deal. It creates a contract that kind of follows the rules of the U.S. and South Africa. It outlines what their jobs are, and we both sign it. And then they get paid like however you want to pay them, right? And so one of the things that I did was I moved a lot of people that were freelancers on Upwork for us, that they were just like basically full-time, right? They're just working like 35, 40 hours a week just for EMI. And I moved them over to deal. I set the contract up the right way, so we're protected in that way. And I just gave them like a they just get paid a lump sum every two weeks. And it's worked relatively well for most people, but I've also had an issue with some people that I did it with. I don't think that they're necessarily working as much as kind of they used to, right? So they're not, I'm not really getting the value for two weeks of pay for what they're doing. And I'm having an issue with that now. I should have probably vetted that before I made the move. I should have outlined it better. The question is like, how do you decide when you have someone who's a freelance team member to bring them on full time? And how do you do that effectively? Like, do you have, do you set the expectations at the beginning? It's going to be this many hours a week, right? Because when everyone's remote, like you kind of don't know, maybe you could shed some light on it through the pod. I got a few responses here, Ian. I know you guys cover a lot of this stuff in DC scale. My first thing is scorecard, scorecard, scorecard. If you don't have a scorecard, click through on your mobile device. We'll have one for you on the post of this podcast. We've also done an entire podcast episode about it. But what is a scorecard? It is a mutually agreed upon set of values and results and actions that you'll be agreeing with your freelancer, with your part-timer, with your full-timer about what you're paying for and give them an opportunity to weigh into that conversation as well. One of the things we've been discussing, Ian, is that I think for COGS-related work, 
cost of goods sold, stay hourly if you can. You know, if you're selling consulting by the hour, if you're selling a certain number of links, if you're selling a certain number of articles, there's no reason to detach the value of the work from the payment to the freelancer. I think you should strive to do that with as many people in your swarm, in your company, whatever the new metaphor is, your collective of value producers. <laughs> Let's try that one on. I think you should strive to do that and really keep full-time limited to those people at the core of an organization who have a defined area of responsibility and not just a set of tasks. The final thing here is that the cool thing about a scorecard is like part of the process is it gets reevaluated every 90 days. So if you've made a mistake and you feel uncomfortable about the way you framed up the value exchange between you and your team member, maybe they do too. And you have an opportunity every 90 days to rediscuss that and to reframe the engagement entirely. So it could just be the case that you brought them on full time and that's not necessary and it's okay. We're going to move back to a system where you get paid for the amount of hours you put in or the amount of results that you achieve. I think that that's totally doable with the scorecard system. I'm just going to make a broad statement here, Dan, but like the companies that are started today are going to have less people full-time than the companies that were started 10 years ago. Because the idea of fractional work is just so much easier now. People are specialized. The prices of these specialized tasks or skill sets are going down. And so I think the idea of like bringing on a bunch of people full-time is kind of an old idea, in, especially in these internet based businesses. Now, if you run a factory, probably still have to hire people full-time to run the machines, but that's not what we're doing here. Cool. Let's jump into some news. Thanks to the question, Anthony. You can send us your questions, Dan and Ian, at thisdomain.com. And do check out our website, tropicalmba.com. It's, it's all got a fresh coat of paint on it. A brand new newsletter there that you can sign up for to hear about everything that's going on below the pod. Let's talk about some news real quick here at the end. Number one, our job board is a freaking ghost town. I know we've been coming on here for years talking about how excited we are about our job board, and I'm not excited about it this month, man. Our revenue, our number of jobs posted has been dropping precipitously since about mid-December. It started slow. We were slower to respond to this macro tech slowdown. And then just this month, it just felt like everyone just stomped the brakes. Yeah, if you look around, I think that's the case everywhere online. And it's like worth pointing out, you know, because you like open up the New York Times and the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and all this stuff. And it's like 3% unemployment, 2% unemployment. It's like really low. Lowest it's ever been. The problem with that, and I read all that stuff, is like it doesn't capture what the listeners of this podcast are doing. Most of us don't have W-2 employees. Like most of us have employees that are on all parts of the globe or contractors, right? So it's like, there's no real way to figure out like what's going on. But what we do know is like a bunch of tech companies like stopped hiring. A bunch of tech companies haven't been able to bring on funding. A bunch of tech companies are getting their banks shut down or whatever else is going on. I want to hear what other people are going through in terms of like hiring, but then just let people know like this is what we're seeing. Yeah, our, our job board is like Bitcoin. Bitcoin, we thought it was going to be a hedge against recession, but it turns out it just tracks with recession. <laughs> it's like, actually, you know, one of the hopes I like, the entrepreneur optimistic hope I have is that as tech companies tool down with full-time W-2s, maybe they'll tool back up the way our organizations have been running for 10 years, which is, we've been talking about this tweet that Casey Ames put out where he said, hey, it's a, 
it's not like we choose this, but it's easier to hire in a different country than it is to hire down the street, right? We have legal and accounting advice tell us, don't get any more W-2s in your company. Yeah. Do not hire in America, like hire people abroad. So maybe these big tech companies will get wind of that fact that it is easier to hire a global network of freelancers and maybe they will start to use services like DJ in the future. So we shall see. Are we the canary in the coal mine? How long are we going to go sideways here? One new product we put out this week is uh, called Find Your Number Two, which is also a synonym for poop. So I don't know if <laughs> you, uh, you want to go with back that. to the drawing board. <laughs> I thought it was going to be it? like, you know, COO, director of operations. Somebody put in number two, though. All right. The colloquial version. So what is this new service? Let's talk about it. So find your number two. It's not what you described. It's actually your number two person, your right-hand man or woman. Going through scale, Dan, just kind of made me realize that like most of the people that go through the program, and I think a lot of people in the DC and maybe a lot of people that listen to this show, they're in a similar position, which is, let's say over half a million dollars in revenue, probably less than $5 million in revenue. They're starting to figure out that like they want to do one of a couple things. They want to like exit the business. They want to like, step away from the operations so they can like work on other pet projects, or they like actually just need someone to run the operations and put process in place. Out of those four examples, like three of them, you need some kind of COO. And so it's interesting just going through scale, the amount of people that are like, yes, I want to implement process into my operations. And I guess I need to find that person to do it because I'm not them. You know, if you reach action, maybe you identify as a visionary. And so they're trying to look for this person that is the operations of the business. So the integrator. Yeah, yeah, the integrator. So this is just kind of something that we're testing out basically. And some feedback that we got early on was like, I didn't know that this person existed out there. If I knew that they existed, I would have hired them a lot earlier. Meaning like people don't have the confidence to say they want this. So it's a two-part process. Like number one, like have the confidence to say you want this person in your organization or that you need this person. And then understand that they're out there. The idea here is basically these people are out there. We've hired several of them. We look at resumes from them every single day. If you want a number two in your business, if you want somebody to run your operations, we can help you do that. So reach out to our team at remotefirstrecruiting.com. Even if you're just thinking about it, reach out to our team, set up a call with us, give us some information and we'll get you hooked up with somebody. Thanks for your email questions, which inspire episodes like these. We love doing them for you. Thanks for writing us. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.